Listeners, readers, welcome to the Fox page, where we dive deep into the very best books. You'll end up with a much better grasp of the title at hand, all while learning to read everything else a little bit better. I'm Kimberly Ford, best-selling author, one-time adjunct professor at Berkeley, editor and PhD in Spanish and French literature. And for those of you who don't exactly traffic in rare books, Foxed Page might be kind of a mystery. Foxing is simply those little kind of brownish dots that you'll see on the pages of very old, very beloved books. The book we're talking about today, though, is not old and it is not beloved. What it is, is super creepy. It's like, a, it's a, it turns out that this is a psychological horror book, which I just, I should have known because of the movie, but I just did not actually know. So we're talking about Elena Ferrante's The Lost Daughter. And uh, as always, the, par the lecture today will be in three parts. In the first part, in which there will be no spoilers, we're gonna talk about why I think you should read this book. We'll do a quick little biographical thing uh, about Ferrante. We're gonna dive in to the first paragraph which is a doozy. And uh, then we're going to talk a little bit about the names. So for anyone right now who is watching the YouTube channel um, and is seeing this lecture visually and listening, you can see that I'm sitting in front of a mirror. I'm, I'm actually in Los Angeles at my brother's house and I'm in one of my niece's bedrooms. I was so happy when I walked in because first of all, this place actually looks like an apartment that you might rent in a very nice uh, little seaside town in Italy. But I also was so happy I had forgotten about these closet doors. And what I really love here is uh, the, this proliferation. So you can see me, but you can also see another image of me behind me. So uh, when we first started recording, I, I had this sense of like, wait, this is this is going to be perfect because we have this this sense of me essentially proliferating very much like the characters and the names and the children and the pregnancies in the book itself. Okay. Then in the second section, we're going to talk about the creepiness of the book, which we're going to kind of dive into um, this, essentially like what these creepy elements are. There are several of them. And then what she's doing with them, why the notion of a psychological thriller is important, why this book takes that form. Then we're going to talk at that point, we're going to talk more in depth about this proliferation of mothers, of daughters, of dolls. There's all sorts of creepy stuff that's proliferating in this book. In the last section, we're going to talk about one doll in particular. We're going to talk about maternity and what I think is sort of the broader message of the book. Uh, Ferrante has written a book that's actually fairly open-ended. If you have seen the movie by Maggie Gyllenhaal, you know that uh, the ending of the movie is also quite open-ended. I did a lot of reading. I listened to a lot of interviews, as I always do before I record my lecture, and um, frankly, I listened to some stuff that was pretty sloppy. So those of you who have listened to me talk ever about Daniel Mendelssohn know that when I think about literature, uh, I don't exactly think about it as a science, but I certainly do think about it as something that needs to be taken seriously. And when I say it needs to be taken seriously in this regard, I simply mean that if you have a thesis or if you have a concept about something that you have read, you need to make sure that all of the data uh, are backing up what you are saying and that there isn't any data that runs contrary to your thesis. So I had quite a bit of data that was running contrary to quite a few theses out there. So I'll be very happy to share um, my deeply researched thesis with you. Um, I'm not going to 
sort of, you know, force one certain interpretation on you, but I'm certainly going to give you the one that I see as supported by the most amount of evidence. And then we are going to talk about the end of the book. So most of you, I think, have read the book by now. You may not have finished it, but those of you who've gotten to the ending, you have a treat in store for you today because this is the book of all of the ones that I've done in these lectures. This is the one that I think is most interesting to go back to the beginning. It's essentially a very circular book, and you wouldn't necessarily know that unless you finished it and then went right to the beginning, um, which is often something I will end up doing. So we'll have a, um, in the end of the third session, we will talk about the close of the novel. Okay. Why is it I think you should read this book? So I'm going to be very candid and say that the whole like um, Elena Ferrante craze really uh, passed me by in the sense that I read My Brilliant Friend right when everybody was talking about it, which was a long time ago, and I did not love it. Left me a little cold. I didn't understand the the sort of the hype around it. And then because I have such a shitty memory, I promptly forgot why it was that I did not like that book. And so I was um, thinking to myself, huh, I should go back and revisit the Ferrante and figure out what it was about it that, that wasn't sitting well with me. I was devising an itinerary for travelers to Italy. And I was thinking, well, Ferrante is such a hit that you know she should be on that list. But I did not feel great about putting the Neapolitan cycle, uh, which is all of her books that are set in Naples, which is where she was born, maybe. We're about to get to her bio, which is interesting. Uh, but I didn't really want to recommend one of the, the Neapolitan cycle. And so instead, I thought, well, I'll, I'll read uh, The Lost Daughter because I loved the movie by Maggie Gyllenhaal. It was perfect. If you haven't seen the movie and you have read the book, I highly recommend it. Olivia Colman is unbelievably good, as is Jesse Buckley. Both of them uh, got Academy Awards. Olivia Colman plays uh, the older woman, Leda. And Jesse Buckley plays the younger version of Leda. And just both of them are really deserving of their nominations. And, and it's just an incredibly well-crafted uh, movie. And frankly, it's much, much richer if you have already read the book. Okay, so partially I am uh, recommending that you read this if you're interested in Ferrante or if you happen to be going to Italy and you are, you know, want you're wanting to sort of check out the Ferrante uh, craze. But if you also um, want a book that's not super, super long. So this book, The Last Daughter, is only about 140 pages. Technically, it is a novella, which I love because it's, um, you know, we, we've talked in the past about shorter novels and certainly about short stories and absolutely about poetry. This idea that, that when you have a shorter form of literature, every single word is sort of weight bearing. Every single word really, really counts. So, you know, if you have War and Peace, there's going to be, you know, the occasional misstep or, you know, in in David Copperfield, there's maybe a scene or two that, that are not quite uh, as well worded and quite as well sort of turned as some other scenes. But in a book this short and one that is so tense, you're really, um, you know, you're going to have very high expectations for the prose. And for my money, Ferrante really delivers. Um, I'm also going to recommend this book because the movie is so great. It's not very often that I see a movie first and then go back and read the novel and have both of them hold up the way that they did. So if you're interested in The Lost Daughter as a film or if you saw it uh, and are considering reading the book, you definitely, definitely should. Um, the other reason why I wanted to uh, you know, recommend this is because this is an incredible, incredible 
analysis of maternity. So I am a mom, I have three kids, I'm 53, they are now 21 and 23 and 25. So almost exactly the ages of the children uh, of this woman, Leda, who is in Italy. And a lot of the, the struggles and a lot of the sort of darker parts of maternity, which I think historically haven't really been uh, brought to the fore. I think now in literature, a lot of a lot of really sort of harsh and really dark mothering stories are, are, are coming, you know, sort of bubbling to the surface in a really good way. But this is one that is done with such incredible literary flourishes, it flourishes in the best of ways. It's, it's really gripping, it's well-structured, it's intriguing, it's a page turner. So it's, it's really something uh, that I think tackles a very, very large issue. Uh, but but does so in a way where it's not uh, none of the prose is kind of suffering because of the you know the large sort of theme that she's tackling. So I wrote my dissertation on the maternal voice in the novels of Carmen Martin Gaite, who is a Spanish novelist who wrote in the last half of the 20th century. And so this was really really interesting to me because it, it shared a lot of the different things that I was exploring. But it really, I mean, this is a woman, Elena Ferrante in this case, is a woman who really, really has done some real thinking and not just thinking about maternity, but really has some interesting sort of theoretical underpinnings about individuation and about, um, you know, the, the, the ways that mothers and daughters can be enmeshed. It's, it's a very interesting psychological study. Okay, so we've talked a bit about why I think you should read it. If you're not into creepy books, then maybe it's not great. But let me tell you, I kept thinking, boy, if I were on vacation in Italy, I actually would love to read this because it's not kind of your frothy beach read. It's actually something that's very sort of gripping and, and, and a little haunting, something you'll definitely think about while you're you know, on the train to your ne next destination. Okay, but now we're gonna talk about her biography, then we're gonna dive in uh, to the text itself. Elena Ferrante is actually a pseudonym. So she's kind of famously, uh, you know, cagey about who she is. She had this quotation about how um, she realized when she was going to publish her very first novel that it was going to essentially kind of go off and have its own experience around the world. And she was going to be very distanced and very separated from it. And so she realized that because she had nothing to do with the publication of the book and sort of its life outside of her, that she didn't need her name to be associated with it. Um, we do know from a bunch of different sleuthing, sometimes I think I'm a pretty good literary sleuth and a pretty good groupie, but a lot of people are really taking this to the next level with Elena Ferrante. Some guy like decided it was this one woman in Italy because he'd looked at tons of bank statements and all of this different stuff. So people are getting real forensic about who this Elena Ferrante might be. Um, interestingly, uh, Helen, so Elena is, um, is sort of another version of Helen, and we're going to talk about the significance of Helen when we talk about the myth of Leda and the swan. I think in English you say Leda, Leda and the swan, uh, which in mythology is a very important uh, character. Okay, so, um, and then Ferrante, in terms of her pseudonym, you know, this is a name that she chose. So it's a name that obviously she chose for significant reasons. Ferrante means gray which I think is interesting largely because I'm assuming here that it comes from pharos, which, which means iron. So it's sort of like this iron gray kind of concept, but pharos also means like fierce. So I, I'm wondering if there is that nuance. I don't know, I did a little research, but I, I didn't dig in too much to the, to the linguistic piece of this. 
Um, but but I'm wondering if there is a certain kind of ferocity that comes along with her last name. Given this novel, I would not be surprised. Okay, we know that she was born in Naples. We think that her mother was a seamstress. The fact that her mom was a seamstress and was a working person, it doesn't necessarily mean that her dad was out of the picture, but you do have this sense of her mother, you know, this was not like an upper class situation um, where she could just kind of, you know, kick back. She, Elena Ferrante also had three sisters, as far as people can tell. Um, and she herself was, um, or is a mother. That's another piece of information that people think they have. She seems to have a classics degree, which she wrote one kind of essayistic kind of academic paper that was very, uh, it seemed very much like she had a classics degree. That's where people made that conclusion. Um, she claims that she writes and she studies and she teaches. It's interesting to me that she says that she writes and uh, studies and teaches because I, um, like when she when we talk about her as as having a pseudonym, I have this feeling that she's like hiding out, like she's like some sort of like J.D. Salinger off in like a bunker writing by herself. But in fact, it just means that she's anonymous. And so it suddenly occurred to me, in fact, that this is a woman who's probably out and about in the world and she's teaching classes and she's having children. I mean, it could be somebody we all know very well. I can't think of a single Italian woman right now off the top of my head. Maybe it's Isabella Rossellini. Just kidding. It's probably not her. I mean, maybe. But so it's 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 there's a lot of sort of mystery shrouding Elena Ferrante as a as an author, which I think is interesting because this this is like a very mysterious piece of text that we're looking at. And I like the idea of of her um, you know persona and her authorship as also being somewhat mysterious. OK, so we're going to now dive into the text itself. I am fascinated by this Europa cover. So those of you who are watching um, on the YouTube channel can see right now that there's kind of this creepy little doll and she has her face toward what looks like a wall. She, she maybe looks like she's porcelain and she's wearing a little crocheted dress and it's unbuttoned and kind of all down the back so you can see her little buns. So we've got this like little doll, but the way that the dress is opening down the back and like past her butt, you can see like, you know, the, the sort of the cleavage of her of her little buns here. And it is so disturbing and it's so sexualized in a way that I was like, wow, yikes. And in, in the in the movie, I didn't get a sense of some of the sexual overtones that Ferrante is really infusing into the novel. So when I saw the cover, I was like, wow, I think they might have, um, you know, they might be suggesting something here that's not really uh, as key an element as this cover makes it seem. And then when I read the book, I was like, whoa, they were spot on. So it turns out that I really like this creepy cover, even though, and I love the pink. I'm, I'm a pink, I'm a fan of pink. And this is like an incredible raspberry. It's really, it's amazing. I would like to know what the uh, cover of the original book looks like, or even just the the Italian paperback, because this is obviously the uh, the, pap the paperback translation that I have here. Um, so the other thing that's important and interesting to me is that the title of the book in Italian is La Figlia, La Figlia Oscura, which means sort of um, like the obscured daughter or the dark 
daughter. If it were Spanish, I do, my Italian is is just like almost nothing. But but I would know that like la fia, like la hija oscura would mean like more than anything, it would mean the dark daughter. So there is this idea of of darkness, which I don't think they mean in terms of skin tone. I think they mean in terms of like dark and stormy, you know, kind of broody and and pessimistic and and dark in that sense, uh, and as like not sunny. So it's la filia os oscura. So it also means murky. So you have a very different sense of what this title is in Italian. And I would actually love to talk to this translator. I'm obsessed with translation. Um, I would love to hear about the thinking behind, um, you know, I'm not sure how it would read if it were the obscured daughter. That does not sound great. Um, and the dark daughter also not so good. So maybe this is, you know, maybe it's sort of like by default, but it does have a lot. Um, it has more nuance, I think. Um, of course, in this case, the title, I do like it. I think the first kind of conclusion you come to is that it has to do with the little girl who gets lost, the little girl named Elena. But we also have this sense of, of a daughter as being lost in the sense of, of you know, our, our narrator in this case is, um, you know, she's much older and her daughters have moved to Canada. So there is this sense of having lost them as well. Uh, okay, so we are going to look at page nine. So when we're diving into the text here, um, we're going to look just right here at the first page. It's kind of no nonsense, you know, there's no, um, it, it would be hard to have a dedication. I, maybe not. I was going to say it would be hard to have a dedication if you were trying to be anonymous. And I, I think I stand by that. You might really give stuff away if you start dedicating it to people. Um, but it is interesting to me that it's it's very, uh, you know, we're just turning a couple of pages. We have this title page and then we get right to it. There aren't parts. There aren't chapter headings. It's very much, you know, it's sort of spare and stripped down. Okay. We're going to dive into the first paragraph, the first all important paragraph, which is really in this case going to point out a lot of things that we should be focusing on. I had been driving for less than an hour when I began to feel ill. The burning in my side came back, but at first I decided not to give it any importance. I became worried only when I realized that I no longer had the strength to hold on to the steering wheel. In the space of a few minutes, my head became heavy, the headlights grew dimmer. Soon, I even forgot that I was driving. I had the impression, rather, of being at the sea in the middle of the day. The beach was empty, the water calm, but on a pole a few meters from shore, a red flag was waving. When I was a child, my mother had frightened me, saying, Leda, you must never go swimming if you see a red flag. It means the sea is rough and you might drown. Wow, this is a doozy of an opening, especially if you have finished the book and you can think a little bit about what happens at the end of the book and where we are as we're coming back toward the beginning. So a couple of things that I want to point out right away. This is a first person narration. So right from the start, we have this, this woman and voice is very important. There's a part uh, later where she's on the beach and she's listening to the little girl and the mother and they're making voices that they sort of have a kind of a baby talk that they do. And then they also have a voice that they use with this doll and, and all of these voices in the beginning, she finds very alluring. And then she becomes really um, sort of repelled and revulsed by them. Revulsed. That is not a word. She feels revulsion. She's repulsed by them. So she has all of these, um, you know, these strong reactions to voice and voice is very important in, in part, 
the, the woman in the in the book is an academic and she uses writing, you know, that's sort of how she, uh, you know, like presents her ideas into the world. And that is her ambition is to use words to illuminate literature. So words and voice, both written and, you know, verbalized are very important. So right from the start, you have this sense of having her voice. But the fact that it's a first person narration and that it is faithfully in her perspective, meaning we aren't going into anybody else's perspectives. It's not like we have a chapter that's told from the perspective of Nina. It's all firmly from Leda's perspective. It, it adds to a little bit of this kind of closed in and sort of claustrophobic sense that we have. We also, importantly, are seeing everything filtered through all of her anxiety and all of her worries and all of her sort of weird neuroses and, and her weird actions. So it, it, again, like you, you don't, because it's her perspective and it's her rationale and it's her explaining things, um, even sometimes when actions are very odd, and she'll own the fact that they are odd, you still, you don't have any kind of outside objective sense of what's going on. So I think this first person narration here is very important. The burning in her side is also very important because of what happens at the very end of the book. This is one good thing about a novella, is if a, a work is only 140 pages long, you can sort of trust the reader to keep this in mind a, a little bit. I mean, I'm not sure if you remember this part, certainly, I shouldn't say certainly because I probably didn't remember because my memory is so terrible. But but you would remember that when she's driving here, um, you know, she sort of forgets she's driving and she drives off the road and has an accident. And then she ends up in the hospital. And you know this all, this is no spoiler, you know this by the very next page. Um, and in fact, all of her Florent, uh, all of her friends from Florence come, all of her Florentine friends come down and see her, including uh, her ex-husband and her two daughters from Canada. So this is a significant event that's happening at the very beginning of the book, this kind of car crash that she is having. And after the car crash, they realize that the only thing that is a problem with her, the only, strangely, the only issue that she has is this pain in her side, which does kind of make you, well, I have some thoughts about this, which we're going to get to the very end, but you should be thinking to yourself, if she's unharmed, why is it that all of her friends and even her family who are coming all the way from Canada are uh, you know, coming around her and, and sort of shoring her up? So that's a little bit of a mystery that we'll talk about in the third section. Okay, so uh, a little bit further down in the book here, um, this idea too of, of not being able to hold the steering wheel. From the beginning, we have this, you know, you can use this driving as a, as a very important metaphor for what is going to be happening in, in the book. So she's, she's driving herself to a new place. It's also important to realize that, so she's from Florence, well, she's from Naples, which is down south. And then, and there's a real regionalist kind of antipathy in the book. There's a, you know, the Napoleon, not Napoleon, the Neapolitan people um, are, are known, well, she sees them as being sort of uncouth and brash and you know loud and critical and having these huge big families and and, and being sort of um you know just not elevated and not you know artistic and not um you know not academic certainly so she moves to florence when she is going to study so but she has come all the way down to the ionian coast so the ionian sea is um like if you imagine the boot of italy it's down below the soul so it's important to understand geographically that she has come from Florence, which is further up in the north, you know, a real seat of like, even more so than Rome, of, of artistry and, 
rarefication and culture. And she has come all the way past Naples and has gone further south. So there is this real sense of her having regressed into this kind of, you know, more southerly person like her youth, but also of having sort of surpassed Naples and, and gone even sort of further south toward, um, you know, toward the ocean and toward, um, you know, if you think about this sort of migration south as, as being both uh, like a, a sort of moving backwards for her, at least that's how she is seeing it, um, and also regression back into her childhood. Okay, so, but this idea, she has driven there, but this idea that she's out of control in the car and that she's crashing the car is very significant because throughout the entire book, we see her losing control. So this idea of her having lost control and having had a really grave accident that has brought all these people to her, um, but actually not like suffered many injuries, uh, that sense of her being out of control is one that we can read as something that's sort of a controlling idea throughout the entire novel. Uh, and then we have this very interesting thing happening where halfway through the first paragraph, this woman is older. We find out later she's 48 years old um, and the beach is empty, the water's calm, which is an interesting you know, sort of detail here. And yet there's a red flag waving. If you're in California, that often just means like a lot of great white sharks. So you know, good idea, even if the sea looks calm to not head out with the red flag. I don't know what it means on the Ionian coast, but it's a little bit eerie that, that you have, you know, the, this flag waving, uh, but, but there's not any sort of visible problems, which is very much like the accident she's going to have. And it's very much like what happens in the book. There's this real sense of kind of invisible threats uh, because most of the threats are in fact psychological. But then of course, arguably the most important part of this uh, of this paragraph is the entrance of the mother into this kind of accident that she's having. So it's a very interesting thing. When I was a child, my mother had frightened me. So as you read that, you sort of the way that it's set up grammatically, it's not, it's not my mother told me about the red flag and that frightened me. It's, it's a much larger statement on some level than that. Um, she starts with the idea as a child, so kind of like her whole childhood, uh, my mother had frightened me. So it's this big, big statement about her mother being frightening. And in fact, her mother is, you know, pretty abusive in lots of ways, certainly very emotionally abusive, constantly saying she's going to leave, um, you know, threatening to leave, sometimes leaving. There, there's a, a, a real sense of insecure attachment that has developed. Um, but then it, it, the, the, the frightening thing is kind of narrowed to this idea that you should never, uh, never swim when there's a red flag, you might drown. So it's this real, I mean, stakes are high here. Like this is not, this is a story, if we're talking right at the beginning um, about losing control in a car and a pain in the side that is so distracting that she's kind of losing, um, you know, control of a vehicle. And then this mother who is saying, you know, you may drown. There's, it, it's a first paragraph. We even only read the first half that is full of threats. It's full of danger. It's full of um, things that should be like your mom should be fairly, uh, you know, she should be someone who is in fact taking care of you. And instead she's someone who is just pointing out red flags. So it's a very heavy entrance to a book that in fact is very heavy, but it's also very sort of gripping. Which I, which I love. Before we wrap up today and uh, before we end this first part of this three-part uh, lecture on Elena Ferrante's The Lost Daughter, I want to just talk briefly about the myth of Lita. 
or Leda. So Leda is a swan, or sorry, Leda is not a swan. Leda is um, a, a, a uh, she's a Greek myth person. What do you call her? She's a, like a goddess in Greek mythology. And Zeus takes the form of a swan. And, he, it, you know, in Wikipedia, it says that he seduces her. He's also, um, many times people talk about the rape of Leda by the swan. And in fact, it, that really reminds me of the black swan, um, that kind of creepy movie with Mila Kunis and Natalie Portman, which there are lots of echoes between kind of the creepy vibe of that movie and uh, this book, more so than the movie of The Lost Daughter. But Zeus takes the form of a swan and you know has intercourse with Leda. And the same night, she also has intercourse with her husband. She then gives birth to, she, with these two eggs from these two men, she gives birth to the, the eggs split. So she has Helen and Clytemnestra and Castor and Pollux. So she has four children who result from this night when she had sex with both Zeus and with her husband. I forget his name. So it's, it's so interesting that the, in this book that she chooses the name Leda for her main character, because what we see in the book is lots and lots of proliferation. So we have Helen of Troy, this, you know, the very beautiful Helen, the one married to Odysseus. Um, no, yes. No, it's Penelope who's married to Odysseus. Anyway, Helen of Troy, she's like the beauty of, of and I think she's married to Paris. My mythology, not great. But anyway, Helen of Troy, this beauty, um, you can also translate that into Elena. So you have this idea of Leda and Helen, Helen being the daughter, but it also is Elena. And Elena is, of course, Elena Ferrante, but Elena is also the name of the little girl in the book. So we have all, already, if you know about Leda and you know about these four children that she has, you have this idea of proliferation. And we know in the book that this the, the woman Lita has her two daughters, Bianca and Marta. So you have this idea of them as sort of a stand-in for Helen and Clytemnestra. In fact, one of them, Bianca, is very beautiful and, um, you know, is very sort of sweet. And, and I mean, neither of them is particularly sweet, but she's much sunnier. And then Bianca, um, I mean, sorry, Marta, the younger daughter, is, you know, she had a terrible pregnancy with uh, with Marta, and then Marta is kind of bitter, and Marta, you know, is is always in the shadow of her older sister. Um, I, you know, and I think it's 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 a we have a little bit of the the shadow also of Helen and Clytemnestra over these two daughters. So, I'm gonna stop there, but just say that this idea of proliferation is sort of the first thing we're gonna uh, dive into in the second installment of this three part lecture. Uh, so join us at the Fox page for part two of our discussion of The Lost Daughter.